All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to our brand new JLI course called Meditation from Sinai. Today, as my mom just mentioned, is a very special day for me personally. It is my birthday, and what better way to celebrate? What better way? No, I don't know. There is no better way to celebrate than to experience a, uh, a class like this together with you guys. We're all family. Cue up the song, we are family. It's great to be here with you in this incredible launch to an incredible course. I'm telling you, I'm sure there are other things to do on a Tuesday evening. You picked the right thing to do. This course, I gotta tell you about this course. So number one, number one, a very special, before I tell you about the course, a very special thank you to our course sponsors. We can't do any of this without our course sponsors. Of course, all of you participating are, are part of what makes the magic happen, but our course sponsors and our general sponsors help make all of this possible. Thank you, Dr. Alex Doman. Thank you, Dr. Joy Maxi. Thank you, Vlad Rabinovich. And thank you, Mariana and Alex Aragas. Thank you so much for making this course happen. Now, let me tell you about this course. This course is called Meditation from Sinai, and the entire focus of this course is on Jewish spirituality and meditation. We have over 70 people, that's 70 people, that are, um, that are going to be attending this course in Town Jewish Academy between the online class, the Zoom session, our in-person session on Thursday, people that can't join live for whatever reason and any particular week but are gonna catch the recordings. Um, we have set over 70 people signed up for this course. Here's the deal, Here, and here's my offer. I'm, I'm not gonna say at the end of the class, I'm gonna say it right at the beginning. If you are signed up to this course and you love this course so much that you would love to share it, and after this class, right, you're gonna know how much you love this, and, you're, you're, and your thought is, you know what, let me share this class with somebody who's never attended a JLI class before, you know, ha hasn't really like in in interacted with this, you invite them and you tell them it's on you. You be the hero. You tell them that you're inviting them on you. And then, it's on me, but it's on you. It's a win-win. They'll get the class, they'll get you a beer or whatever your favorite beverage is, and they'll join an incredible epic course. I hope that offer makes sense. If it doesn't, I'll say it at the end of the class, but let's jump in. This course is all about Jewish spirituality meditation, so I begin with a story about meditation. There were two women, Jewish women from the old country, who met one day for coffee. So one asked the other, Nu, how's that husband of yours? Is he still unemployed? And the other one says, no, not anymore. So she says, so what does he do? So she says, he meditates. And she says, what's that? What's meditation? And the other one says, I'm not sure. But it's sure better than sitting around doing nothing. Okay, so that's one, one anecdote slash joke. The second, please don't judge the class by the jokes. The second one goes like this. There's a Jewish woman who travels to the Himalayas in search of a famous spiritual guru. She heads east by train, by, sorry, by plane, train, an automobile, bus, an ox cart. Finally, 
ox cart? Is that a thing? It is now. Finally, finally, she reaches a Buddhist monastery in Nepal. And there's an old lama in a maroon flowing robe that tells her that the guru that she's seeking is meditating in a cave at the top of the mountain. And this guru who is in meditation in the cave cannot be disturbed under no circumstances. She is insistent. I traveled all this way to see him. I must see him. He says, you can't. She says, I have to. He says, okay. Okay. See, it's hard to say no to a Jewish woman who's very persistent. She, he says, okay. But here's the deal. You can see him, but you can only say eight words and then that's it. So she says, deal. With the help of the Sherpas, she trudges and makes her way up the mountain. She finally reaches the top and she heads toward the cave. And as she approaches the entrance of the cave, she sees the guru deep in meditation and she utters her eight words. Sheldon, it's your mother. Enough already. Come home. All right. My friends, my friends, there is a... Choose in meditation. Okay. My friends, here's the deal. <coughs> There's a strong connection that exists between Jews and meditation. However, I would say this, that there is a misconception about meditation. By raise of hand. And I know I can't see all of you. And okay, that's fine. But for those that I can see or if you want to um, uh, show your video so that we can do this. And actually, you know what? There's digital hands. You can put up a digital hand. By raise of hand, either real or digital. Raise your hand if you have engaged in some form of meditation, meditational practice before. By raise of hand, if you've engaged in meditation before. Okay, I'm looking, looking, looking. I see many of the hands are up. Um, most of the hands are up. Okay, good. So we're in good company. Fellow meditationalists, perfect. Here's what I think. And here's what I think to be true. I could be wrong, but here's what I think to be true. That many of us who have practiced meditation have not practiced Jewish meditation. In fact, are wondering what is Jewish meditation at all? Is that even a thing or are we co-opting an Eastern thing? See, many of us believe, um, due to no fault of our own, that meditation is something that is an Eastern tradition, an Eastern practice. And at best... Judaism has, you know, in recent times, perhaps in some circles, some new agey kind of contemporary Jewish circles, perhaps have, have co-opted these practices to make it a little bit Jewish and a little bit, uh, a little bit timely and a little bit relevant. That, my friends, could not be further from the truth. Meditation has a very deep and a very rich Jewish connection. As we'll see tonight and throughout this course, Jewish meditation goes all the way back to the beginning, to the very first Jew, a.k.a. Abraham. And it's practice. The practice of Jewish meditation is literally embedded in daily Jewish life and ritual, whether or not we're aware of it. It's a part and parcel or is part and parcel of daily Jewish life and practice. My friends, this 
is the definitive course on the topic. This is a brand new course. It is absolutely epic. This is meditation from Sinai. The objective of this course is to explore the beautiful history of Jewish meditation, understand the spiritual technology that makes it tick, learn how to practice it in our own lives, and of course, enjoy its incredible benefits. These are the objectives of the course, and my friends, over the next six weeks, I guarantee this, we are going to hit all of these objectives. Over the next six weeks, you and I are going to explore and practice Jewish meditation to moderate our emotions, expand our awareness, elevate our consciousness, and reframe our life in the here and now. This course presents the biggest and boldest spiritual meditative ideas, all from a uniquely fresh Jewish perspective. The things that we're going to learn over the next six weeks will truly be transformative and powerful. You're going to gain real-life tools that you can put into practice immediately. Plus, and this is, as some of, you, some of you know this already, in each session, we are going to have the awesome opportunity to enjoy a guided meditation from our favorite Australian Kabbalist, Rabbi Label Wolf. And many of you have, uh, have seen Rabbi Wolf live. We've, we brought him down to Atlanta multiple times. Um, in person, we've had him on Zoom over the last few years. And in every one of these six sessions, we are going to have a guided meditation from Rabbi Label Wolf. This is going to be amazing. This is epic. And I'm so glad you are part of it. Before we go any further, first things first, let's define the terms. We, until we know what we're talking about, it's going to be a little difficult to talk about it. So the first thing I want to do is define the term meditation. Please unmute if you're muted and jump in and tell, raise hand, whatever. We can go around and call, and, and, and call on people or you can just jump in. Tell me what is your working definition of meditation? How do you define meditation? All right. Yes. It's um, conversation, spiritual conversation. Spiritual conversation. Excellent. I love it. Okay, good. What else? Let's get some more definitions. I'm collecting definitions. Deep, open-minded listening. Open-minded listening. Excellent. Good. What else? That sound is uh, some seltzer, just in case you're wondering what's going on here. L'chaim. Introspection. Introspection, good, good, good. What else? All right, I need more. Connection with our soul. Connection with soul, excellent. Beautiful, beautiful. All right, what else? What else? Let's... Sorry? Clarity. Clarity, good. Uh, did I hear mindfulness? Did somebody say mindfulness? Beautiful, excellent, excellent. What else? Getting the clutter out of the brain. Good, decluttering the mind, excellent. Excellent. What else? Let's take another one or two. Connection with Hashem. Connection with Hashem. Excellent. Good. All right. Final one for right now. Be awkward if we ran out of uh, right as I call the last one. All right. Um, Richard, jump in. I was thinking of uh, being able to uh, face yourself. Face yourself. Okay. Excellent. I love all these definitions, and I think each one is powerful and poignant on its own. And honestly, we could probably spend the whole session 
going through each of these definitions and understanding the nuances. I want to give you, I want to give you one definition that I found. Um, hold on one second. Let me just make sure everybody's muted just so we have a nice clean background. So I want to give you a definition that I found in the dictionary on the word meditate. So the definition that I found was that meditate means to engage in contemplation or reflection. So meditate means, according to this translation, uh, de definition, sorry, is to engage in contemplation or reflection. Okay, interesting. I think it aligns with some of uh, the thoughts that were shared by you guys uh, a few moments ago. I want to add one detail. That's a little bit more than a detail. And this is going to help uh, frame meditation from a uniquely Jewish perspective. Meditation is not simply the act of thinking or contemplating or being aware or reflecting. Meditating is thinking or contemplating to the point that you begin to feel something. And this is a key definition. Meditating <coughs> is to think or contemplate something to the point that you begin to feel something. This is the Jewish definition of meditation. I'm not suggesting that everyone has this definition or that we're, you know, we'll find this everywhere we look when we, when we seek to understand what, what meditation is. What I am suggesting is that this is the Jewish take. After all, meditation from Sunday might as well learn what Judaism says about meditation. Meditation is, first and foremost, contemplation, um, an inner discourse, thinking about something to the point that it creates a feeling, that it begins stirring an emotion. In other words, meditation is not just about the head. It also involves the heart. Sure, it might begin in the head, but when done right, it pulls in, it draws in the heart as well. Now, for all of those, for all of you who think that you've never practiced meditation before because you never took a meditation course or you never you know, engaged in meditation, formal guided meditation, let me tell you this. Even if you think you've never meditated before, I can guarantee you, you absolutely have. Let me explain. If you've ever been in love and thought about the person that you were in love, that you are in love with, to the point that you felt a warm feeling inside and a smile crept across your face, you meditated, right? What happened was you thought about something to the point and you connected with the thought, in this case about someone, to the point that you started feeling good. You started feeling an emotion. Welcome to the wild world of meditation. Give you another example. I heard this example originally from Rabbi Sheikh Staub. Some of you might have been there when he said this. I love, I love the way he framed it. He said, if you've ever been in a car, <coughs> driving down the highway or wherever, and while, while you're driving, in the middle of nowhere, you start thinking about uh, Yankel, y Yankel, who did something that you didn't like. And you start thinking to yourself, you know what, one second, it's not the first time he did that. He said something not nice or he did something not nice uh, a few weeks before and a few weeks before that. And you start putting together a pattern in your head of all the time that Yankel did something wrong to you or hurt your feelings. And you begin getting upset. 
And now you're mad at Yankel, and you're gripping the steering wheel, and you're maybe, you know, maybe uh, your heart rate is rising, and, and you're clenching the steering wheel, and you're very upset at Yankel. Welcome to the wild world of meditation. You, my friend, have just meditated on Yankel. You meditated on a person or an experience to the point that you felt it so deeply that it produced an emotion. That is meditation in a nutshell. The difference between these examples that I just gave and what we would call formal meditation is that in these examples, the meditation is happening to us, whereas ideally meditation is something not, that, not, that, that's not something that is reactive, but rather proactive. It's not something that we're meant, I'm gonna take out the word meant. Meditation that's practiced is less about becoming a victim to our thoughts and feelings and more about how can I consciously guide my thoughts to produce an emotion that is desired. That is at the core of what much of Jewish meditation is all about. It is intentionally guiding our thoughts in order to produce a desired emotional result. Let me check in for a moment with you guys. Um, the definition of meditation and Jewish meditation makes sense so far? Yes? Yes? It's focused thought to the point that it produces emotion. It could either happen to us, you know, we're driving and suddenly we conjure up negative feelings about someone and we get upset, or we can intentionally and proactively guide it. Okay, so far so good. Um, any questions, feel free to jump in at any point, but I'm going to pause periodically to, to check it. Now, I mentioned, yes. It feels shallow. If I go to a movie and watch something and I get an emotion, um, yeah. I go to a funny movie, I go to a sad movie, I think it's something deeper than just something that brings up an emotion. I think there's an active part of being present, very present, and listening for something, knowing that what I used to be a Quaker. And I found that to be very well, where they, where they, I just spent about for 30 seconds here, where they spoke about what was called waiting on the Lord, where you would sit there and be quiet, listening basically for God to speak to you. Not like, no, I want you to build an ark kind of thing, but it would form up in your mind about that. And I think that's really, it's made of active listening and not just an emotional reaction. Good. Excellent. Excellent. So I, I think we're, we're agreeing more than we're not agreeing because even though meditation stripped down means and a thought that produces an emotion, what you're saying is accurate. That meditation really means that it's a guided process, an intentional process. So whether it's quieting the mind or filling the mind, either way, there's a, there's a, there's a um, uh, I'm going to use the word premeditated, but there's an intentionality. That's a better word. There's an intentionality about it, which I agree. Now, the, the, the form of meditation that you mentioned, um, which is kind of clearing the consciousness and allowing, you know, kind of the messages to come to you, et cetera, allowing you to feel what's going on, we are going to explore that in subsequent classes. Today, and this is, I'm about to say this anyway, in the, kind of as, as, as this class unfolds, there are many forms and nuances of Jewish meditation, and the, the particular type that you're mentioning, we are going to touch upon in, in future lessons, subsequent lessons. So hold that thought. Or clear that thought. No, I'm kidding. Don't clear that thought. Hold that thought because we're going to get back to it. Today, we're going we're gonna to do a unique form, which we'll see soon. But first, let's get there in, a, in a, another way. I mentioned 
a few minutes ago at the top of the class that although we might not intuitively or instinctively associate Judaism with meditation, we would associate meditation with Eastern philosophies and religions, nonetheless, it's part and parcel of Judaism. In fact, it dates back to the first Jew. I mentioned that before. So where do we see this? Where, where is this recorded? Where do we see that Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob, where do we see that they meditated? I want to share with you a very interesting text. Now, um, a quick note. If you, if you um, register for the course, um, for the six-week course, um, then there's a textbook that either arrived to you or is on its way. For, does it, anybody that we can see the camera, did any of you receive your book? Yeah, okay. If you got your book, hold it up. And I just want to show, for those of you that did not receive a book or are not yet confirmed for all six weeks, it's a gorgeous textbook, full color, with just incredible, <coughs> incredible wealth of information. The course, it's worth it just for the textbook. Just saying. So if you haven't yet received it and you signed up, it's on its way. If you're not yet fully signed up, if you're trying out the class, you know what to do after the class or right now. Don't worry, I'm not checking. Uh, you can open up another tab. No one's going to notice. Here's the point. Don't, don't worry with me because I'm very far. I will, I will once, I, I, my dream is to stop in Atlanta and to pick up the book. Okay? Oh, not bad. I know it's a bit of a flight from Santiago, but nonetheless, if you, if you, we can certainly arrange that or maybe we can make it happen. All right, we'll, we'll figure out. Okay. We'll figure out a way how to make it. Okay. Don't send me. Don't send me. Okay. I will, I will go to Atlanta. Got it. Perfect. Perfect. Good. That's a Good, it's a good way to, to, to get you back, um, to get you back here. Okay, so, so when it comes to the origins of Jewish meditation, so where, where do we find Jewish meditation with the patriarchs? I'm going to share my screen um, for the benefit of all. If you have the book, you could see it right here on page number three. Um, otherwise, I have it up right here. I'm going to make it large. Give me a second here. Let's make it nice and big so everyone can see it. Okay, this is coming from Rabbi Leo Akoin Haitamari. And Dr. Maxi, please read text number one. The patriarchs chose to be shepherds so that they could be alone in the wilderness, where the air is clean and pure, and they would be far from other people. For the sake of secluding themselves. Thank you, Dr. Maxi, for reading text number one. So what we have here is an indication of something phenomenal. That the patriarchs specifically chose their vocation to be one of shepherding to allow for the seclusion. Now, this ties into what Moshe mentioned before, the idea of solitude and seclusion clearing the mind, creating that space to connect. There's a beautiful power in this, in, in, in this evocative text. They chose to be shepherd, to be, to be alone, to be secluded. The air is clean and pure. It sounds so romantic, so spiritually romantic, and it is. In fact, I'm going to add a little piece to this. It's not just the patriarchs that were shepherds. You know who else was a shepherd? I'll tell you who else was a shepherd. We have, um, who else was a shepherd? Most, so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all three were shepherds. The, well, 11 out of 12 of the, of the sons of Jacob were shepherds. Joseph was, he became viceroy of Egypt. So he was a little bit uh, past the shepherding stage. But 11 out of 12 sons of Jacob, 11 out of 12 tribes, so to speak, were shepherds. Moses 
for many years, was a shepherd. King David, before he was king, was a shepherd. Many of the greatest of the great of, in our tradition, our history, they were shepherds. And the mystics, the Jewish mystics, explain what is the reason behind all of the shepherding? What, they couldn't, they couldn't find other work? What's with the shepherding? Why be a shepherd? And the answer that's given in Kabbalah and Jewish mystical uh, tradition is because being a shepherd, being a shepherd allows one to practice solitude and meditation. Apparently, I'm not a shepherd, never been a shepherd. Apparently, you got some time in your hands when you're a shepherd. And you have the ability to focus on what you want to focus on and to think about the beauty and nature, etc. I don't want to fill in the meditations right now, but just point out that meditation can happen in a profound way while one is shepherding. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob chose those, that profession, and others chose that profession to be shepherds. By the way, here's a fun fact for you. The first, the earliest recorded um, instance, the earliest record of Eastern meditation dates back approximately to 1,500 years before the Common Era. Okay, so 1,500 plus 2,022, it's about 15 plus 2, why can't I do the math here? 15 plus 2 is, what, 3,500 years ago or so. About 3,500 years ago, give, give or take. Give or take 22 years. Abraham lived 1,800 years before the Common Era. So we're talking about 300 years, 300 years before the earliest record of Eastern meditation. In our tradition, we, we have it on tradition that Abraham was already practicing meditation. So what's going on here is something profound. Not saying that Eastern meditation necessarily gets it from Abraham, gets their inspiration from Abraham, although some have suggested that, but that's for a different time, different topic. I mean, not a different time, but different time, different class, perhaps. But just saying that it's not that Judaism gets meditation, gets inspired by other traditions and philosophies. Judaism has meditation from the beginning, from the very first Jew. In addition to the history of meditation, there's another powerful connection in Judaism that I mentioned before. I mentioned before at the top of the class that embedded in daily Jewish practice is the practice of meditation. Where do we see that? I want to draw your attention to the very next text. Take a look as I share my screen and we take a look at text number two. This comes from the Mishnah. Let's ask, um, hold on one second. Let us ask... Um, Steve Horowitz, Steve, please jump in, please, if you will, and unmute to read text number two. We must approach prayer with reverence. The early pious sages would pause and thought for one hour so that they could focus their hearts on God and only then pray. Thank you. And I want to break down this Mishnah. This Mishnah comes from Tractate Brachot, which is the first tractate of the entire um, set of Mishnah, the entire scope of Mishnah. In Bracho chapter 5, the first Mishnah says, so interesting, my son Shaya, who's in, um, he is in fifth grade, fifth grade. So Shaya, 
Shaya um, is studying now Mishnah, Mishnayot, Mishnah, and he's studying this tractate. And we were um, reviewing Mishnah last night, and he read this Mishnah. This exact Mishnah was the one that he practiced. So kind of uh, synchronistic, whatever the word is. It's, uh, it's good to see things sync up in the universe. So here's, here's what the Mishnah says. You gotta pray with reverence. And what that means is, you can't just show up to prayer and say, all right, I'm ready. You can't show up cold and be like, ready for an experience. It's not gonna happen. It's not gonna happen. You, you gotta prepare for it. So the Mishnah gives the example of the early pious sages. They would pause in thought for one hour to focus their hearts on God and only then would they pray. Pause in thought for one hour, there's, a, there's an English word for that and we call it meditation. The early pious sages would meditate for a full hour and only then begin praying. You should know that it's not just the once upon a time early pious sages. There is a tradition amongst many, even to this day, especially on Shabbat. Maybe during the week, it's hard to get another hour before we pray, before we go to work. It's, you know, you, it's, it's, it's more challenging. But on Shabbat, you know, we're not running to work anyway, so then uh, we, we have the time, especially nowadays. Services here at least start at 10 o'clock. I mean, my gosh, you got, you got like three hours of meditation built in over here. You, you have plenty of time. So what's the point? The point is that the early pious sages, and many t to this very day, they took an hour, study meditation, and only then begin to pray. The Talmud says something interesting. There's a verse that says, a verse in scripture in Torah that says, serve God with your heart. And the Talmud asked the question, what does it mean to serve God with your heart? How do you serve God with your heart? What do you do with your heart? And the Talmud answers, prayer. Now we can ask a question, though. How, how do you pray with your heart? What it means is you pray with meaning. You pray with intention. In Hebrew, we would call that kavanah. Kavanah means intention. Pray with focus. Pray with mindfulness. How do you get to that state? You got to prep for it. You got to prepare for it. And that's where meditation comes in. So what we see here, two things, just to recap, two things. Number one, meditation is connected with Judaism from the outset. From the earliest Jews, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they chose to be shepherds specifically to have time to meditate and to engage in spiritual mindfulness. That's number one. Number two, to this very day, the experience of prayer is designed to be accompanied by meditation. Without meditation, it's going to be really hard to jump in and have an experience during prayer. Right? To have an experience, you need that prep time, and that is the meditation that precedes prayer. So what we see here is that, again, meditation is intrinsically connected with Jewish history and normative Jewish practice. Now, meditation in Judaism takes on and is described in three different ways. Generally speaking, Jewish meditation is focusing on Jewish spiritual ideas to direct our consciousness and guide our emotions. Like we said before, that meditation is at the core um, consciousness that then guides emotion. Right? That's, that's the core of it. At the same time, um, Jewish meditation would be doing all of that in a spiritual way, in a, with, with Jewish spirituality. Fine. But specifically, there are three forms of Jewish meditation, 
we've, well, I alluded to this before in, in, in conversation with, with a question and answer, but I want to I lay this out there from the beginning so we have clarity on three different categories of Jewish meditation. And to do this, once again, I'm going to pull up the screen and the book. If you have it, you can open up to page number six. And you see here, figure 1.2, there is a chart. And it says meditation. And it has three lines. There are three categories of meditation. I'm going to read the Hebrew, and then we'll, uh, we'll do the translation and explain. There's what's called hit bodedut. That's level one. Level two is hit bonenut. Level three is kavana. Now, these, the first two sound similar, right? Hit bodedut and hit bonenut may sound very similar, but two different words. Hit bonenut, sorry, hit bodedut means seclusion. Seclusion. This is kind of the idea of being a shepherd, secluding oneself, and the meditative practice is called transcendence meditation. Transcendence meditation. Not going to explain this in detail right now, and we're not going to practice this right now, but throughout this six-week series, we will encounter multiple examples and forms of transcendence meditation. Okay? The next category down is called hit bonenut. You see it there in the transliteration as well which is translated typically as contemplation. And the practice, the meditative practice is contemplative meditation. Contemplative meditation. Again, we'll give more examples. The third category is called kavana, which means, which is translated as focus. And that, the practice of that is mindful awareness or intention meditation. So mindful awareness or intention meditation. Now, this third category, kavana, is what we are going to practice tonight. Not exclusively, because in subsequent sessions we'll also have additional opportunities to practice kavana, but tonight is when we're going to have our first encounter with this third category. Kavana means that we're focusing our mind on a very specific topic to produce a very specific result of our choosing. Right? Then you have contemplative meditation and transcendence meditation. All of these terms will be explained as the course unfolds, but these are the three general categories. You should know something very interesting. I'm not gonna, we're not going to go through the texts right now. This is your in-between session activity, if you, if you choose it to be. Um, there is, in the additional readings of this lesson, let me, find, let me tell you what page it's on. It's going to be on page, um, hold on, it is going to be on page 25 of your books, page 25 in your student book. There are three texts that describe the meditation of the early sages that they performed or they, they, they um, engaged with prior to prayer. Let me say that in English because I don't think that came out right. Remember the Mishnah that said that the early sages would, pr would meditate for an hour and then pray? Okay, the curious mind might ask what they meditate about. What, what, what did they do? Because I would, I would love to do that. I would love to know what they did and then we can, we can replicate that. What did they do? There are three different opinions. I, shocker, right? The Judaism have different opinions, right? Now you have your first, maybe your first machlok, your first dispute about meditation. Right. What was the nature of their meditation before prayer, before davening? Three different opinions. It's on page 25 and, and, and beyond in your student book. 
three different opinions, and these perfectly reflect the three categories of meditation that we just outlined in that chart, figure 1.2. There's the hitbodirut, the kind of seclusion meditation. There's hitbodirut, which is contemplative meditation. And there's kavana, which means focused thought. Different opinions about what they meditated on reflect these three realities. Maybe they did all of the above. For us, certainly, all three paths are available. Tonight, we're going to practice a kavana meditation. Okay. I also need to mention another very critical point, and that is because Jewish meditation, sorry, because meditation in general is so tied into a cognitive process, that's what, that's what in part of what makes Jewish meditation so vitally important. Because as we've been talking about uh, this evening, other forms of meditation are often drawn from, East, from the Eastern tradition, which utilizes other forms of spirituality that are not consistent with Judaism. It might be in the form of a certain mantra or chant that's repeated or a pose or some sort of uh, underpinning belief that is a little bit at odds with the Jewish tradition. Whatever the case, classic meditation is typically not consistent with Judaism. Now, you might say, well, the ends are great because I feel more relaxed and more calm, and, and that is great, but the pathway to get there oftentimes when it's based on the Eastern tradition is rife with other ideas of spirituality and God and divinity, etc., that are just not consistent with Judaism. So it's important. Another goal of this course is to present an authentically kosher Jewish meditation or explaining meditation from a Jewish perspective that is inherently kosher. Again, it's not a criticism of, of, of any other practice. It's just saying that it's, th this is the most, um, what's the word I'm looking for, the most um, conducive, yeah, conducive form of spirituality in, um, for the Jew is Jewish, of course, Jewish Meditation. The, the, the most conducive form of, of, of meditation for the Jew is Jewish meditation. And that harkens back, of course, to the, uh, to the joke with Sheldon. Yes, Richard. Yeah, I, I've heard this, tell me if you've heard this also, that uh, when Abraham had other children, yes. that he uh, sent them off with gifts. He gave possession to, uh, he gave possession of the land to, to Isaac. Right. The people who said, oh, I've heard that he gave uh, the mysticism to them. They, they took it to the East and they developed this meditation. That yeah. may have originated with Abraham. I, that, I've heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I alluded to that before, and thank you for sharing that. That is speculation. I, I don't think anyone can prove it. But the Torah, definitely, the Torah itself tells us that Abraham fathered a number of children after Sarah passed away, and Abraham sent them all to the East, right. to the land of the East, and he sent them off with gifts. And Rashi says, what type of gifts? He gave them gifts of wisdom. And there's speculation that who were these descendants of his, who were these children of his that took spiritual gifts to the East? Maybe it's the, uh, the, the, under, the, the foundations of uh, the underpinnings of, of the Eastern traditions, the spiritual traditions. I, it's, there are other correlations and, and connections that, that have been speculated about and drawn, but... Yeah, either yes or no, either way, I think the important thing to, to remember is that there is an authentically Jewish form of meditation that differs from other forms of meditation. In fact, and I'll just mention this parenthetically, in the, um, 
in the 1970s, I want to say, the 1970s, um, the Rebbe spoke at length about the need for kosher Jewish meditation. Um, there was, uh, the meditation movement was, was very strong then. And unfortunately, what was happening is that a lot of young Jews or not so young Jews, whatever, were being drawn into meditation. But in the context of meditation, which is good, but in the context of meditation, <coughs> we're being pulled in some spiritual directions that weren't consistent with Judaism. And so there was a movement, and the Rebbe was behind the movement, to kind of not create uh, a, um, a Jewish alternative, but to, to teach our tradition, and it's important to do that. I, I heard this story from, along these lines, I heard this story from Rabbi Label Wolf from Melbourne. Uh, he told me this story. I think he may have even said it at one of his lectures in person years ago. He said he was, it was Friday afternoon, he was in, in, Melbourne, in Australia, in Melbourne, and he sees, he overhears like two young Jewish guys with backpacks, and they're speaking Hebrew. So he knows that they're Jewish. You know, he hears them speaking Hebrew. So he starts speaking to them in Hebrew. He says, hi, how are you doing? Whatever. Well, and he invites them over for Shabbat dinner. Sure, I mean, young backpackers, you know, finish the army. They're traveling, you know, uh, to foreign country. Who, who would turn down a home-cooked meal? So they head over to his house. And they begin talking. And they tell him about their travels. They went from, after they finished the army service in Israel, they went to the Far East, and they went through you know, different parts of, uh, of, of the Far East before they, got to, before they got to Australia. And they were talking about how, how enamored they were, how impressed they were with the Eastern spiritual tradition. So he asked them, he said, tell me, so what, what, what did you learn? What are you, uh, what are you impressed about? What, are you, what, what took you? Um, and they, they, they gave him some ideas. So he walked over to his shelf of svarim of Jewish books, and he pulled out books of Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy that basically has the same ideas, and they could read Hebrew, so he showed it to them. You know, it's, it's here in Judaism. So they said, ah, we didn't know that, that, that these are translated in Hebrew. He's like, no, 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 no. We have our own tradition also. It's not just the translation. It's, uh, Judaism has its own tradition. It's important that we know that. It's very important that we know that and, and recognize the power that is within our, own, within our own tradition. It's like the famous story of you know, looking for treasures everywhere else and realizing that you got the treasure in your own backyard. So that's a little bit also about what this course is about, recognizing the spirituality in our own tradition. We don't need to run to other centers, to other spaces, to discover spirituality, meditation, etc. So with this background in meditation and Jewish meditation, we're now ready to jump into our big topic for today. And that is meditational mind control. Now when I say mind control, I don't mean controlling someone else's mind. That's for another class. This, this is about being in control of our own mind. The techniques that we'll be learning and practicing today can be utilized for many, many things. But what we're going to focus on tonight is utilizing meditational mind control uh, techniques to mediate and temper our negative emotions. So I'll say that again. What we're going to focus our attention on tonight is learning and practicing meditative mind control techniques with one specific goal in mind, which is to mediate 
and to temper our negative emotions. So let's start this way. Raise your hand. Let's do another raise your hand exercise. Raise your hand, either real or virtual, if at some point over the last week you've experienced a negative emotion such as fear, anxiety, anger, self-doubt, judgment of others, raise your hand. Every hand should be raised. Let's go. Get those hands in the air. I'm kidding. If you haven't, kolakavod, God bless you. But I would venture to say that if we're being honest, you know, maybe even you're, maybe, maybe you're offended that I would suggest that you had a negative emotion. All right, then raise your hand. Perfect. You got offended, negative emotion. Excellent. I, I'm, I'm happy to set that up every day of the week. So here's the point. Here's the point. We all have negative emotions. And this is not my judgment. I'm not going to say, oh, you know, tisk tisk tisk. That's a negative emotion. You shouldn't have that. I don't, I'm not, don't, I'm not here. I mean, I am, but that, forget about me. You know for yourself what's a positive emotion, what's a negative emotion. You know for yourself when you feel good inside and when you don't feel good inside. I, I, I'm, no one's telling you how to feel or what to feel or how to judge your own emotions, but you know for yourself. You know for yourself when you're in a good place, when you're not in a good place. And as human beings, we're not always in a good place. Right? We know for ourselves. Some days, forget days. Days are too big. Some moments, things are good. Some moments, uh, it could be better. You know, it could be better. We're struggling with something. We've got a fear. We've got anxiety. We have, you know, a little, we're a little sad. We're a little dis <coughs> disappointed. We're judging others. We're judging ourselves, etc. So, here's what we know. We know that we are complicated human beings that have complicated feelings. And we know that all too often, our feelings lean in these negative directions. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good to feel negative, but we feel it anyway. What are you going to do? you got a negative emotion. It is what it is, right? But wouldn't it be great to be able to get rid of our negative emotions? Wouldn't it be great to push away our negative feelings? That's a rhetorical question. The answer is yes. Yes. That's where, that's where I'm going with this. Yes. Yeah, that would be great. That would be amazing. I, I want to share with you a text that is at once beautiful and absolutely ludicrous. Text three. I'm going to share my screen for the benefit of all. Okay, here we go. Text number three from Deuteronomy. Page 8, <coughs> this text is coming from passages in the Torah that, de that detail Jewish laws, Jewish rules of war, Jewish rules of warfare and how that, um, how that unfolds. Ray, would you be able to read for us? No. Okay. Let's go with, um, let's go with Bethany. Bethany, are you up to it? Yes? Okay. All right. Don't forget to unmute, please. And please read this passage, Conquering Fear. Take it away. As you approach the battle, the Kohen shall come near and speak to the people. He shall say to them, Hear, Israel, today you are approaching the battle against your enemies. Do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. Do not be alarmed or terrified because of them. Thank you. So what we have here is the way the Torah describes 
the way the Torah describes preparations for battle. So the Kohen gets up there and he speaks to the soldiers and he says, Hear up, hear, Shema Yisrael. Oh, I mean, this is not like the Shema Yisrael, but same, same phrase. Shema Yisrael, hear Israel. Today you're approaching your enemies. Do not be discouraged. Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Do not be terrified. Uh, and I'm going to say that's beautiful. Wow, so beautiful. So empowered. So, don't be afraid. It's fantastic. Okay? At the same time, it's ludicrous. Ludicrous. How effective is it to tell someone, don't be afraid? They're afraid, and you say, don't be afraid. Thank you very much. I also know I shouldn't be afraid. Yeah? I also know. Don't be afraid. Thank you. What? Any other wise words, uh, Mr. Cohen? Right? Like, anything else to share before I go on into this battle that I'm literally shaking my boots? Hey, you tell me. Don't be afraid. Why not? I mean, I, or not even why not. I am afraid. This is scary. We're go, I'm going into war. I'm going into battle. This is scary. Tell me, don't be afraid. I am afraid. So what do you do now? What kind of business is this, don't be afraid? H- how is that even a thing that you can say to someone? You can't magically wave away fear, can you? Well, maybe you can. Maybe not with magic, but with meditation. So in this lesson, in the duration of this lesson, what we're, going to, what we're going to do is learn powerful Jewish meditative techniques to get rid of negative feelings such as fear and replace them with positive feelings. Not only that, we're also going to learn how our new meditative posture can radically reshape our reality, improving our lives and the world for the better. I know it sounds too good to be true, but it's absolutely legit. Hold on tight because you ain't seen nothing yet. Let's jump in. To understand how it is that our meditative state of mind can undo negative emotions such as fear, which I just suggested it can, we first need to understand the core mechanics of how meditation works in the first place. How does meditation work? We're going to explore this through the unique lens of Jewish spirituality as expressed in Kabbalah and Hasidic philosophy. So let's begin by taking a look under the hood of the human being. Let's look at the spiritual landscape of the soul as described in Jewish spirituality. Every single human soul possesses 10 individual soul powers. These are known as the Eser Kochot HaNefesh, the 10 powers of the soul. Let me pull this up on the screen so that we can all see this. Um, this is going to be page number 10. Here's your soul map. Let me make this screen a little bit. Let me minimize this a drop so that we can fit everything in one page. Okay, that should work. What you see here is a depiction of the 10 powers of the soul. The way you read this chart is from top down and from right to left. After all, it is Hebrew. Well, sorry, it is English right now, but it's, it's uh, formulated in the Hebrew way right to left. Top right, you have Chachma, followed on the left by Bina. Then you head down to Dat. Then again, right is Chesed. Then left is Gvura. Middle is Teferet. Right is Netzach. Left is Hod. Middle is Yisod. And at the bottom is Malchut. We do not have 
the time to get into all of these 10 energies and soul powers tonight. We're not going to do a deep dive. We've, we've done other courses. I, I did years ago an eight-part course on these 10 um, characteristics, which we should revisit at some point, and we will please God. But here's what you need to know. That these 10 soul powers exist within every single one of us. You, and I mean you as an individual, you have the power of wisdom, the power of understanding, the power of knowledge, the power of love, the power of restraint, the power of compassion, the power of ambition, the power of humility, the power of connection, and the power of receptiveness and royalty. You have all 10 of those powers in your soul to one extent or another. Let's add the second layer of understanding to this. These 10 energies are broken down into two general categories, as you see with the text on the right side. As you can see, there are the words intellect and emotions on the right side. And intellect is divided, intellect and emotions are divided with that little line, that little gray line, which signifies the following. Kabbalah teaches us that the first three energies, well, the first three energies are obviously intellectual powers, the power of wisdom, understanding, and knowledge. The, 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 the lower seven energies are emotional characteristics. Love and fear and compassion, ambition, etc. These are all emotive energies. So there are the cognitive energies that we possess, three of them, and the seven emotive energies that we possess. Our soul, and this is this is a this is an X-ray of the soul. This is what the soul looks like under a spiritual microscope. It possesses these ten soul powers. So essentially. Our soul is an amalgam. It's a, it's a combination of ideas and feelings. That's what comprises the soul. Ideas and feelings. And, and I think you and I can relate to that. I mean, who are we? We're what we th they're, they're how we think and how we feel. That's who we are. Our ideas and our feelings. Now, the placement on this map is highly significant. And it's quite intentional. You see, the cognitive powers, the intellectual powers, are standing in this depiction above the emotional powers. You first have the three cognitive abilities and then the seven emotional abilities. And that is highly intentional because the depiction indicates a truth about these different powers. And the truth is that the, the cognitive powers of the soul have a natural ability to control the emotions. I'll say that again. Our intellect, our intelligence, has a natural ability to control the emotions that we feel. That means that our emotions are inherently and directly formed and guided by our ideas. Show me how you think and I will show you how you feel. What you understand directly impacts what you feel. If you understand something to be good for you, you will feel a connection toward it. You will feel drawn toward it. Understand that something is bad for you, you will be automatically repelled by it. Attraction and repulsion. Right, The two basic forces, the two basic magnetic forces of, of our natural universe. 
Yeah, you take a magnet, you turn it the right way, the two magnets stick together. Put it the other way, they push apart. Attraction, rejection, right? Pull, push, closeness, distance. That emotional disposition, I feel close, I feel distant, I want to get closer, I want to step further away. All of that is based on directly one thing, how you understand a given situation. If you understand the person, the situation, whatever, if you understand it to be good, you're going to want to get closer. If you understand it to be not good, you're going to, you're going to want to get further away. It directly affects the emotion. I'm giving very basic examples of a very fundamental idea. In the language of Tanya, Tanya being the foundational work of Chabad Chassidic philosophy and one of the foremost works on Jewish meditative technology, in the book of Tanya, he describes it thusly. thusly. He says that the cognitive powers of the soul are the parents and the emotional powers of the soul are their children. It uses the language of parents and children. Why? Because the nature of our world of biology is that parents are the ones that beget the children. It's parents that give birth to the child. In a similar way, in the identical way, are ideas and emotions. The ideas that we have give rise and give birth and guide our emotions. Let's take a look at this inside. Let's take a look at this inside. Text number four, and then we're going to pause for a moment and take some, some questions. All right, text four from the book of Tanya. Let's ask uh, Ruby. It is so great to see you. Welcome, welcome. Ruby, if you don't mind, please unmute and jump right in. Chapter three of Tanya. The human soul is divided into two categories, intelligence and emotion. The intellectual faculties mainly, Chakma, wisdom, Bina, understanding, and Da'at, Da'at, knowledge, are referred to as the mothers and the source of the emotions, but the emotions are the offspring of the intelligence. Thank you. I love, I love how he couches it in, in practical terms. He says, the three faculties... Chachma bin and Dat, the three intellectual faculties, which, by the way, the acronym of, of which, Chachma bin and Dat, spells the word Chabad, as you may know. So Chachma bin and Dat, those are the mothers. He doesn't even say parents. He just goes straight in with mothers. He says they're, they're, they are the mothers. They are the source of the emotions. And the emotions are the offspring of the intelligence. Why is he using the example of mothers and children, parents and children, mothers and offspring? Why is he using this this terminology, for a very specific reason, the reason that I said before. It's because it's not just that the soul has cognitive abilities and emotional abilities. No, 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 no. They are inextricably bound to each other. One derives from the other. It's the, it's, it's the intellectual powers, the cognitive powers, that, that directly birth the emotions. This is a huge idea. This is an absolutely huge idea. All right, let's pause for a moment. Questions or comments on what we've learned? Yes, mom. Uh, so I have a question that's, that, that um, we, there was an incident um, in, I think, Atlanta, where a man lost his temper terribly. And he was in, 
he's an intellectual man with a high-ranking position he was fired from um, because he was he was um, caught ca- calling this this person he got angry at a waitress um, a, a racist term and um, he said oh that's not really me and my emotions got the better of me so if our intellect is shaping our emotions how could so what's the real what i mean is that an excuse that or, or is he really a racist i mean what's the oh real, i i can't i can't comment i mean, i wouldn't no, comment no, no, on anybody no, specifically no, that's that's just a that's a that, i'm using that as an example right is is his intel that his intellect really get overpowered by his emotion or is he really or does the or does the emotion really come from his intellectual um, uh, uh, bend to be to be you know a racist? Right. So yeah, yeah. So I, I would say like this. I I, I don't I, I it's I, I can't comment on any specific case, but in general. No, no, I'm ge- not asking. No, I you know I, I understand, but I'm saying I don't want to even get into the word racist or not racist. But no, here's no, the no. here's the general here's the general the general idea is like this, that. When somebody loses control in anger, what's happening is there's a narrative that's driving the anger. And the narrative is shaped by a perception of reality that is being processed cognitively. The person's mind, the person's brain is is being aware of a situation judging the situation, assessing the situation, and coming to conclusions that then fuel the emotion. For the very, and the proof is that oftentimes, right, we get angry until somebody gives us a piece of information that we were missing, and we say, oh, I didn't know that. I'm sorry. (laughs) What happened to the emotion? It wasn't really, right? The emotion didn't exist on its own, what actually happened was the emotion is produced by a cognitive perception and awareness of a situation, which has many parts to it, not just the person. It has many parts to it. It's how, it's what's going on and what it means. There's a lot of layers to it. That's why I'm saying it's, yeah, I don't, I don't wanna like reduce it to one specific thing. So the point here is that there's a lot of cogni- cognition not a lot. It's the cogni- cognition, it's the awareness of a situation that directly gives rise to the emotion. You take two people, right, put them in the same situation, and they could act, they could respond emotionally completely differently. And it's not the situation that gives rise to the emotion. It's not like a situation triggers an emotion directly. There's no direct line between a situation and the emotion. It's always processed in the mind, which is why since everyone processes things differently, which is why people have different emotions and feelings about the same thing. So it's a, it's a great question, and, and, and it, it allows us to kind of you break this down kind of nuts and bolts and get, get down to it. Everything that we feel is directly a product of how we perceive the thing or the situation or the person or whatever it is to be. It's all about a cognitive perception and an awareness. In other words... In other words, there's a story that we believe to be true. There's a story, there's a narrative, there's an awareness of something that then gives rise to the emotion. So there's always an idea that fuels the emotion. 
Yeah, so so that my question is, so when a person does something out of, uh, he says, my emotions got the better of me. Yeah. So, and I'm not responsible. Right. Is that really true? That he believes that? Sure. But is it really no, true? The answer is no. Of course not. No, of course not. The whole, the whole point of what we're going to develop tonight, and we're, we're ahead of the, over the next 21 minutes, is to explain how we, do, how, how we do have the ability to be in control, and that is what we must. We must be in control. Now, the goal here is not to condemn someone to say, you should have been in control, and why weren't you in control? The goal here is not about anyone else. The goal is about myself. The goal is, for all of us, is to think about ourselves and our negative emotions, whether it could be anger or it could be fear, it could be sadness, it could be self-judgment, it could be judgment of others, it could be any of the above. As I said before, these are, I think these are the ones that I listed before. In any of these cases, what's, what's prudent is to think about what is it that led me to think a certain way. But I feel like we're a little bit ahead of ourselves. What, what, what we described based on the, the mystical depiction of the soul, the mystical snapshot of the soul with the ten soul powers, is the fact that what gives rise to emotions is the cognitive awareness. It's the cognition, it's the thought, it's not the thought, it's the, the ideas or the understanding that gives rise to the emotions. That is always the way it works. The emotions do not come from themselves. They are born of a way that we're thinking. Thank so that's, sure. So that's, 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 that's a, very important, a very important point to keep in mind. Now, let's develop this a little bit further. Because in Kabbalah, not only, are there ten, not only do we describe ten powers of the soul, but there are also, on top of that, three garments of the soul. So there's what the soul is comprised of, i.e. ten soul powers, and then there are garments of the soul, levushe hanefesh, that are modalities of the soul's expression. Let me explain what that, what those are. The three modalities of soul expression are thought, speech, and action. If you have an idea, you can express it in thought, which is internal, you can express it in speech, which is external, and you can express it in action, which is concrete. If you have an emotion, you can think about it, you can speak about it, and you can act on it. That's not what you feel. That's not the idea that you have. Those are the forms of expression. Let me put this up on, on, once again on the screen, or you have it in your book. This is going to be figure 1.4, again, on page, still on page number... What page is this? Page number 11. Take a look at this, at this, uh, at this chart. We have machshava, dibur, and maiseh. Thinking, speaking, and doing. These are your three soul garments. So what you have here are the, the, the soul map. You have the ten powers of the soul that are depicted like this in figure 1.3. And then you have the three garments of the soul as depicted in figure 1.4 that look something like this. Thinking, speaking, doing, or thought, speech, and action. What's the difference between a soul power and a soul garment? Well, soul power is the actual substance, the very stuff of the soul. A garment is not the very stuff of the soul. A garment, by its very name, indicates that it's a layer that's on top of the core thing itself. Think about garments, the clothing that you and I wear, right? There's the body itself, and then there's the clothing that's layered on top of it. 
Same thing is true with the soul. The soul has 10 powers. On top of that, there is the ability for the soul to express itself in one of three ways, in thought, speech, and action. It's very important to note, what I'm trying to bring out here is that these three garments are not the parameters of the soul itself. The parameters of the soul are the 10 soul powers. These are three manners by which the soul power, the soul powers express themselves and call, are called forth into expression. An idea can be expressed in thought, speech, or action. A feeling can be expressed in thought, speech, or action. In other words, a soul's ideas and feelings belong to the soul's subconscious. Whereas the garment, that's the plane at which the soul's consciousness comes into focus. Think about, this. Think about it this way. You can have an idea that you know very well. An idea that you know backwards and forwards. But you're not thinking about it. In other words, it's not in your conscious thought. You're not consciously aware of it right now. You know it, but you're not thinking about it. It might be a mathematical formula, like the Pythagorean theorem. You know the Pythagorean theorem. How do I know this? Because I know you. You know the Pythagorean. Who does it, right? You know, of course you know the Pythagorean theorem. And yet, what is the Pythagorean theorem? Right? Let's ask that question. Is that A squared plus B squared equals C squared? Did I get that one right? Is that that one? It is? Perfect. Whew. Be super awkward if I couldn't come up with that in the moment as I went for it, you know, just going for it on fourth down over there and just absolutely getting stuffed by the defense. So thank God that didn't happen. Here's the deal. A squared plus B squared equals C squared. Now, that's uh, yeah, how you measure a triangle, right? Done. So here's the deal. Here's the deal. You knew that. But before I said it, you weren't thinking about it. And because you weren't thinking about it, it's not in your conscious thought. It's in your, it's somewhere in your subconscious, you know, storehouse of ideas. It's in your files of all the things that you know. You got a lot of files back there. You got a lot, you, you have a lot of files in there. You got a lot of information that's stored up. But what are you thinking about right now? One thing at a time. And right now, I said Pythagorean theorem, you're probably thinking about that right now. As I say, right? That's the way it works with thought. So ideas and thoughts are different. Different. Ideas, that's what you know. Thoughts are what you're thinking about right now. And you could be thinking about ideas or feelings. You with me on this? Your thought doesn't have to be intellectual. It could be emotional. I'm thinking about how upset I am for whatever reason. I'm thinking an emotion. I'm thinking an idea, the Pythagorean theorem. So thought, I'm just trying to describe the difference between ideas and thoughts. Because oftentimes that becomes a little bit confusing. You say ideas and thoughts and people, oh, same thing. It's not the same thing. At least in Kabbalah, it's not the same thing. In Jewish spiritual, Jewish spiritual teaching, it's not the same thing. Ideas, <laughs> that's what you know. Thoughts, it's what you're processing right now in your consciousness. Two different realities. Files on your hard drive or what's open on the screen right in front of you. Two different, two different realities. Let's keep on going. It's active thought as opposed to the latent ideas that you have somewhere in your subconscious is what shapes your consciousness. It's what in a very real way moderates your mood. It's what you're thinking about right now that moderates your mood. Not what you know. Oh, I know that once upon a time or I know that good things have happened or will happen or are going to happen. What I know that. That's not going to help your mood right now. But you know what will help? If you're thinking about those things. Ideas don't change your mood. Thoughts change your mood. 
I'll say that again. Emotions are born of cognition, but not the subconscious type, the stuff that you're thinking about right now. So there are three partners in the creation of our mood. Number one, the emotion itself. Number two, that emotion which is born of our understanding. Number three, and that is activated by our active thought. So there's the emotion which is born of our understanding, which is driven by active thought. So what's the key to all of this? What's the key that turns the ignition on this whole process? Active thought. It's active thought. It's active thought that will shape what it is that in this moment we are feeling. Thought is the oxygen that fuels the emotion in the present moment. When the thought is active, so is the emotion. You suck the energy out of the thought and the emotion dies. If it has no fuel, then, then the emotion will die as well, at least for the moment. If you've ever been anxious, if, you ever, if you've ever experienced anxiety, you know what this means, right? The anxiety is being fueled by active thoughts that are driving the anxiety. When the thoughts dissipate, so does the anxiety, right? Someone has feelings of anxiety that are coming up. In those moments, guaranteed, you're thinking about something that's producing the anxiety. Viharai, as we would say in Talmudic parlance. And the proof is that at, at other times, you're not feeling that anxiety. And you know what? Because you're probably not thinking about that other stuff that was driving the anxiety. That's the way it works. It's conscious. Is this making sense? Just not if it is. Yes? Yes? Okay. At least I got some of you. I'm kidding. All right, good. I'm, glad. I, I'm hoping this makes sense. So what this means is, yeah, that it's active thought that fuels and drives the emotions at any given moment. Understanding this process is literally life-changing because it means that we're aware of how thoughts drive emotions and that knowledge is power. Because knowing the power of thought means that if we can somehow figure out a way to disrupt the negative thought patterns, we can disrupt the negative emotions. Again, once we're aware of how this process works, that emotions are fueled by cognition and not just ideas that we know, but what we're thinking about, once we know that, then we can hack the system. Right? You can literally hack the system, the internal system. Because once you know that feelings are driven by active thoughts, well then disrupt a negative active thought and disrupt the negative emotion. Now you might be thinking, well, how can I disrupt my thoughts? Do I actually have that ability? Aren't thoughts beyond my control? The answer is no, they're not. They are within your control. They're within every, every single person has the power to control their thoughts. This is what I call meditational mind control. We all have the power to consciously choose our conscious thoughts, to be in control. That's why Kabbalah calls thought a garment. Just like a garment, an article of clothing, you can choose whether to put it on or to take it off, which garment to put on or to take off. You choose your clothing. The same thing is true with thought. You can choose what you think about at any given moment. It might not be easy, not suggesting that it's the easiest thing in the world, but it's within our ability to do. And when we harness this power, we absolutely gain superhuman abilities. Modern psychology, for the record, has a term for what we're discussing now. Modern psychology has come around to figure some of this stuff out. And the term that is used is metacognitive. Meta 
cognitive. To be metacognitive is to be aware of how we're thinking, to pay attention to our flow of thoughts, to recognize the impact that our thoughts are having on our feelings, and to then wield the power to disrupt those thoughts that we deem to be a negative catalyst. All of this is within our control. Let's go back to the book of Tanya, which is, again, just a profound work. I'm going to read this one. Take a look at this one, text 5. Page number 13, probably. Yeah, page 13. Okay, hold on one second. Okay, here we go. The mind naturally controls the heart. Humans were created from birth with the ability to exercise willpower to control the drives of our hearts so that they not be expressed in our behavior, speech, and thought. We are able to divert our attention completely away, sorry, completely from things our hearts crave to something entirely different. I, I, we don't have time to completely dissect this text, which is worthwhile, but we don't have the time right now. The, the main thing that I want to point out is the idea of the ability that we have to divert our attention. That line right there, we are able to divert our attention completely from things that our hearts crave to something entirely different. That's powerful because it means that diverting the attention is the key to all of this. It's the diverting attention. Now, you might ask the question, well, how, how easy is it to divert attention? That seems like a profoundly difficult task. How do you divert attention? Imagine you tell yourself, I don't want to think about it. You're thinking a thought that's producing anxiety, and you tell yourself, I don't want to think about it. Good luck. Good luck. You fight with a thought, you're only going to get more entrenched. You fight with a thought, you're getting more engaged in the thought as you're trying to fight it. So what's, what's the plan, right? What's the plan? How do, you, how do you fight a thought? How do you get rid of a thought? It's so much harder than it sounds, right? How do you actually get rid of a thought? You wrestle with a thought, you're done, you're finished. Now it's even more, now you're even more worked up about it. You're, you're not, it's not getting better, it's getting worse. How do you get rid of a thought? Divert your attention. What kind of diversion of attention? What does that even mean? So you might say, okay, I got it, I got it. So I'm not gonna fight it, I'm just not gonna think about it. So I'll quote from Dostoevsky, who wrote, try to pose for yourself this task, not to think of a polar bear, and you will see that the cursed thing will come to mind every minute. Yeah, try to not think about a polar bear. You're not gonna wrestle with it. <clears throat> Just tell yourself for the next 60 seconds, I'm not gonna think of a polar bear. Good luck, not gonna happen, not gonna happen. Why? Because now you're thinking about not thinking about a polar bear, and you're thinking about a polar bear. So what's the solution? It's very simple, very effective. I didn't say easy, but very simple, very effective. And the simple and effective solution is what comes, what rises from a profound letter penned by the third Chabad Rebbe, the Tzemach Tzedek, the grandson of the author of Tanya, who wrote this to his mechutin. So let, let me explain what a mechutin is. A mechutin is when your child marries someone else's child, the relationship between you, between the two sets of parents, they're called mechutanim. So the Tzemach Tzedek, all right, if that worked, fine. If not, it's okay also. The Tzemach Tzedek had a son who married the daughter of, uh, of a, very, a very fine chassid whose name was Rabbi Shlomo Freitas. Okay, so his son married this guy's daughter. Well, at some point in time, about right around 200 years ago in the 1820s, 
So, so um, 1820s was 200 years ago? Ah, seems like yesterday. I'm kidding. So the 1820s, yeah. So, so Rabbi Shlomo Freitas writes a letter to his Mechutin, who was the rabbi that Semat Tzedek, and he describes some difficulty that he was going through. He describes his declining health and financial situation, and he basically talks about the fact that he's very anxious and worried about, about, about the situation. The Tzemach Tzedek pens a letter that is absolutely epic and is just the, the guiding principle for what we're discussing. So I'm going to share this with you, share the screen, and let's read it together. Um, look what he writes here. This is text number six. Even if we are emotionally afraid, we are able to, div- to, div- to divorce our thought, speech, and action from that emotion. The essential thing, he says, is not to contemplate or discuss the fear at all, but to do the perfect opposite. Immediately upon letting go of the thought entirely, the fear will dissolve on its own. At the very least, it will become instantly dormant and not felt in the body. Then over the course of several days, it will, become, it will completely dissolve to the point that it will not enter our minds at all. Removal of the thought leads to dissipation of the fear because emotions are, dep- are entirely reliant upon intellectual focus, that for their existence, which requires active thought, as we explained before. Therefore, by removing our thought from the matter, the intellectual power that is withdrawn from the emotion, with the result that the emotion ceases to be activated. Look at this last paragraph. It is worth training yourself to remove all negativity, for we must rid ourselves from all fear, including justifiable fear, as I wrote. This is certainly true in your case, where there's nothing to worry about whatsoever, thank God, in terms of your health and financial situation. So first of all, the seventh said, well, last of all, I guess, the seventh said was saying, you have nothing to worry about. But even if you were worried, even if it was real, like in the case of the soldiers going to war, where the coin says, hey, don't worry about it, don't be afraid. The message is, not that you have nothing to be afraid of, maybe you do, but don't focus on the fear. Don't think about the fear. When you don't think about it, then you're not going to feel the emotion. The moment you feel it is you know that, you know that you're thinking about it. So, so to, to neutralize the emotion, neutralize the thought. Now, again, we still haven't explained how to do it. How do you neutralize a, a thought? How do you get rid of a thought? You, you fight it. You can't fight it. You try to not think about it. You're, not, you're not, not going to think about it. You're going to think about it more because you're not trying to not think about it. So what do you do? Simple answer. As it sounds like it continues to unfold in this letter, which we'll share in a moment, he says, the key is... And, and this is like the key to this, to, this, to this lesson, to this point of the lesson. The key is not to fight the idea, not to fight the thought, sorry, but rather to replace the thought with another thought. You're not going to stop yourself from thinking. And if you try to stop yourself, it's not going to work. It's going to backfire. The key is not to fight it, but to just gently redirect your thoughts to a thought of your choosing, a positive, gentle calming, uplifting, healthy, joyous, happy thought. That is the key. To move yourself away from the negative thought to a positive thought. Not by fighting it, but by just imposing a new thought, a healthy thought, a happy thought in your mind. Just thinking something positive in this moment automatically replaces the negative thought. Take a look at the next text, which is absolutely gorgeous. The primary method of removing worrying thoughts from your mind is by redirecting your mind toward other matters. You can replace them with thoughts of necessary material matters that bring you joy, and you can contemplate God's Torah that delights the heart. The latter is best achieved through creating a fixed schedule of daily Torah study, which is particularly effective with a study partner. So he says, how do you get rid of the negative thoughts? You don't get rid of them. you got to replace them, redirect them to something more positive, something 
positive and healthy and uplifting. That's the way you do it. You don't fight it. You redirect it. And redirect it could be anything. Think about a vacation, a past experience, an upcoming simcha, whatever you want. Find something that causes, that, that when you think about causes joy, and then think about that thought. Just think about it. Could be matters of Torah. Have some Torah study in your back pocket of your mind so that you can pull it out whenever you need. So when you, when you feel yourself starting to head down that rabbit hole of negative thoughts, you pull out a positive thought. You just break it out and you say, you know what? I'm, this is what I'm thinking about right now. It's incredible because the way the mind works is you can only think one thought at a time. So either you're thinking the negative thought, which is creating the negative emotion, which is creating the, 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 the tailspin, or you're thinking something positive. Reminds me of the, the story with Moshe Dayan. Moshe Dayan, right, the famous uh, Israeli general, right? He's speeding down the highway. He gets pulled over by the highway patrol. The cop says, uh, do you know how fast you were going? So Dayan says, listen, Mr. Police Officer, I have one eye. You tell me, where should I be looking? At the speedometer or on the road? That's what he tells. I don't know if this story ever happened, but it's a great story either way. Either it's a joke or a story, but it works, right? I have one eye. Where do you want me to focus? I'll let you choose. Here's the point for us. You have one thought at a time. We get to choose. Don't fight the negative thought. Just replace it. Now, the problem is that to replace a thought requires a little bit of willpower. You've got to like, willfully choose it. And that's not something that happens automatically. That's where the meditative practice comes in. Jewish meditation at least as described in lesson one. We have five more sessions with more nuances of meditation. Jewish meditation Part of Jewish meditation, the art of Jewish meditation, is the practice of willfully choosing what to think in any given moment and having the ability to replace a negative thought with a positive thought. This is something that we just read in the text should be done every day, intentionally, not only when crisis strikes, when I'm feeling sad, when I'm feeling angry, when I'm feeling um, anxious. No, 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 no. Mindfully, willfully practice mind control of yourself every day. Ideally, in Jewish practice and tradition, it's in the morning as part of the prayer experience, as we said before. It's consciously conjuring up the thoughts that I choose, not the ones that come to me in my darkest moments. No, the ones that I choose so that in those dark moments, I can once again choose. Whether it's a neutral positive thought, when I say neutral, like a worldly positive thought, something fun, or even better, a Jewish thought, a Torah thought, a spiritual thought, something that lifts us up. This not only creates a new mood for ourselves, this also shapes reality, which touches on the final point of today's lesson, which is the Jewish law of attraction. How we think radically affects the energy that is imposed upon us from above. This is because our 10 soul powers are mirrors and reflectors of the 10 soul power, 10 cosmic powers of the universe. Without getting into the mechanics of that, of that, uh, of that alignment, here's what you need to know. When we are in a state of joy, born of positive thoughts, then that is the way it's mirrored above and joy, joyous experiences come to us. When we are in a state of sadness or when we're in a state of, 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 of being tight and being, you know, um, Sikfetched. I don't know how you translate that, being, you know, you know uh, folded inward, then that creates the same experience above and the blessings are restricted and don't flow. The way we are, if you have a book, you can look at the text. We're not doing the text right now inside. We're going to wrap this up. As we are, so is above. 
because everything is paralleled and everything is a mirror. The Baal Shem Tov taught, as we are below, so it is above. That is the cosmic Jewish law of attraction. Thus, meditation, Jewish meditational mind control is not only beneficial for our emotional mood and disposition, it literally affects our reality, our life, and the blessings that we receive. By changing our thought patterns, we change the way we feel. By changing the way we feel, we can conjure up, we can invite blessings into our lives that we could not have invited had we been in a state of melancholy, had we been in a state of anger, had we been in a state of anxiety. Those don't elicit the blessings that we want. It doesn't trigger, doesn't mirror the energy that we want to be given to us. So to create that energy, it's all about changing our mood. And how do we change the mood? Again, through our cognitive thought processes. So in summation, we learned seven big ideas tonight. I'm gonna, I'm gonna wrap them up very quickly. Idea number one, our feelings flow from our mind. Number two, our conscious thoughts direct our mood at any given moment. Number three, we have the natural ability to be in control of our thoughts if we so choose to exert that ability. Number four, we cannot eliminate negative thoughts, but we can replace them. Number five, replacing a negative thought with a positive thought radically alters our disposition for the better. Number six, improving our mood attracts a positive energy flow from above. And number seven, and the final point, is that to be in control of our thoughts requires a lot of work, requires work and preparation so that we have that muscle trained. Because otherwise, to try to pull it out when you need it, it may not work. You're in a bad mood, you're feeling anxious, you're feeling sad, you're feeling angry, and now you're going to start thinking about what positive thoughts I can think about this to flip my mood. Good luck. It may not happen in the moment. But if we proactively, on a regular basis, on a daily basis, every morning, practice mindfulness, Jewish mindfulness, Jewish spiritual mindfulness, where we are, we are choosing the kavana, we're choosing what to focus on, well then, in the crisis mode, we can draw on that practice and replace the negative thought with a positive thought, alter our mood, and transform the energy around us, literally improving the situation for the better. All right, I hope that makes sense. Yes? Give me a thumbs up. Yes? Okay. And you don't have to, but only if it made sense. Okay, thank you very much. This concludes Lesson 1. However, we now have a three-minute meditation from Rabbi Wolf that I'd like to share with you. Um, so stay, hang on for the meditation. This is going to be a morning meditation. If you're thinking, well, what can I do in the morning to practice this mindfulness and mind control? You don't have to come up with your own ideas. We literally have from Abu Wolf in Australia a three to four minute morning meditation that you can listen to right now. You can watch and listen to and practice because you'll get the recording of this and it'll, it'll be there um, that you can practice every day to get yourself more in control of your feelings, of your thoughts, and of the universe at large. So, we're going to show the meditation soon, but first, to kind of wrap up uh, my, my, uh, my, my spiel for a second, um, this is the core of this week's class. Next week's session, we are going to, the class is entitled Mind Yourself. Mind Yourself. We're going to build on the meditational skills we learned tonight and turn even further inward. We're going to contact our innate soul spirituality and see how the awareness of the spirituality that lies within ourselves can help us discover the divine 
that is around us in the world at large. And in the course of this lesson, we're going to focus on the meditative paths of Hitbodedut and Hitbonenut, which is that uh, transcendence meditation and the contemplative meditation. Join me next week. You are not going to want to miss this. It is absolutely phenomenal. A few quick notes, again, before the video. Note number one, um, if you are trying out the course, we'd love to have you join. Announcement number two, point number two is, as I said before, my offer is, if you are signed up for this course and you want to share this with someone else, you want to invite them to join, then feel free to extend the invitation. For anyone that has not taken a course with us before, a JLI course, you can invite them on my dime. You can call it your dime. It doesn't make a difference. Let you be the hero. Just let me know who they are and let me know their information and we'll send them the info. We'll get them hooked up. So, um, so let's do that. Um, in other words, what I'm trying to say is next week, instead of 70, let's have 140. Everyone invite one friend, and boom, we're at 140. And now 140 people will have the inspiration of Jewish meditation to share with others. It will be an amazing thing. The synergy will be amazing. Um, finally, a few other quick announcements. I am, we are having a Rosh Chodesh Society uh, session for women next week, challah baking uh, Monday night with the challah girl ATL which is a very unique experience. Um, so join us for that. We have a Jewish book club coming up and as an event called Hidden Secrets of Israel all on the website. Without further ado, let's get the meditation started. After the meditation, I am available for um, a few minutes of Q&A and further discussion about the topics. Let me pull this up. Give me just a quick moment to get ready over here. Let me find it. While you're getting ready, I'm just going to assert or put a, put a plug in for those Chalabake girls that are from around here. Okay, awesome. As far as I know, I think. If it's the same people that you're talking about. Where, where are the people that you're talking about? They're, they're four sisters. No, 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 no. This is somebody oh, no. local in Atlanta, yeah. Oh, okay. She calls herself Chalabake girl um, Atlanta. It's very, oh, okay. it's very... Um, very specific, though. There's a very, very specific, specific yeah. group here, too. Chalabak girls. See that? So that's apparently it's, it's, it's going viral. Um, okay, let me well, pull yeah, this yeah. up. Let me pull this up and let's share this video. Give me a quick moment. All right, I'm all set on my end. Let's do the share. Okay, optimize video clip. All right, folks, relax. You might want to turn down the lights in your room. Relax, get into a comfortable position and uh, let Rabbi Wolf take it from there. All right, if everybody could please mute themselves so that we don't have any other background noise so we can all hone in on uh, Rabbi Wolf. That would be awesome. Okay, here we go. No matter what yesterday was all about, tomorrow is a fresh day. You're going to begin painting on a new canvas, creating a very different picture. Again, one of your choice. We do that spiritually every day when we say in the morning the affirmation Ani. And what characterizes a new day is to begin initially with gratitude. Because from a posture of gratitude, you can paint a beautiful picture of the coming day. Gently close your eyes 
Allow your shoulders to slump a little. Feeling warm and heavy. Warm and heavy. Feeling your arms, your legs, warm and heavy. Inducing the relaxation response. Feeling calm, peaceful and serene. You have much to be thankful for and each morning express gratitude because the gratitude that you express is able to begin the painting of a new canvas, a new creation, a new picture of the day. Mode Ani. I thank you, Hashem, for bringing back to me this morning a freshness of soul, consciousness, and awareness. Mode Ani. I thank you, Hashem, for providing me with the freedom to express myself today, truly. I thank you, Hashem, for allowing me to be distinctive, original, unique, so that my soul can make its unique contribution to the world. Mode Ani. I thank you, Hashem, for changing the world every day in front of my eyes, giving me the scope to be able to play my individual role in the whole process that leads to a destiny that I am part of. Hashem, I feel indebted. I feel gratitude. Thank you, Hashem. Today will be a new day. All right. I don't know about you, but I, I enjoy that a lot. Um, I hope you enjoyed that as well. I always love uh, Rabbi Wolf's meditations. Although that didn't end with, uh, like, wiggle your fingers and toes. So it was kind of like an abrupt, uh, I hope we're not stuck, you know, like, when people, like, uh, hypnotize, and then you forget to give the thing, and they, they're like a chicken for the rest of the, I mean, that, that would be super awkward. But the good news is that we didn't meditate on being a chicken. What we did, though, discuss, just to clarify, that was a morning meditation, a modani meditation, which is super powerful because it's embedded in the framework of daily Jewish life, 
to reflect and, and, and have gratitude. And when, so let me, let me just tr connect a quick dot. When we choose in the morning to think about God and, and our soul and creation and thankfulness and gratitude, when we choose to think that, that is us asserting control over our thoughts. We're choosing to meditate on a specific area of thought. And that can come into tremendous, tremendous um, use in times of crisis. To go back to the example of the person who's enraged and shouting at the, at the waitress in the restaurant, think about if that person took a moment to meditate on all the blessings in their, in their life that they have. And the fact that God is allowing them to be, you know, to be uh, alive and created once again, a new this moment, maybe the shouting would stop. But in order for that to happen, the emotion has to be quelled. In order for that to happen, the thought has to change. In order for that to happen, we have to be in control. So, my friends, let's practice this week. Between now and next week, let's practice this, this meditational mind control. It's going to be to our benefit and, of course, the benefit of all of those around us as well. Um, okay, I want to thank all of you for joining. Don't forget... Don't forget, very important, if you're not yet signed up for all successions, you can do that. I'm going to put into the chat, for those of you that want an easy, quick and easy link, I'm typing it in right now. Hold on, let's see if I can get this done. Um, jewishacademy.org slash meditation. Okay, let me make sure I spelled that right. Hopefully it'll take you to the right website, intownjewishacademy.org slash meditation. Oh, you can't even click on it. Oh, well. Anyway, you can copy and paste it <coughs> or just go to the website and, um, and sign up and join us. And don't forget to invite someone and let me know who you invited and we'll get them on for next week. Deal? Good? Thank you very much for joining. Thank you all for being a part of this magic. Can't wait to see you next week. We have, if you think things are heating up, they're just starting to heat up next week. Starts... Uh, we're at 212 degrees, my friends, next week. That's the boiling point of water. Things are starting to simmer next week, and uh, it's going to be incredible. Great to see everybody. And um, Thank you so much. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking through the chats here. All right. Sending lots of love to everybody, and um, we'll see you all soon. Take care. Lila Tov. See you. Thank you. Ari. Pleasure, pleasure. Bye.